Would you pray with me? Father, in your kindness to us now, um, really do give us ears to hear. We are so easily distracted and so pressed upon by things that pull us away from you that we need grace to hear what it is you have to say to us now. And God, what, what you have to say to us now is so important and so beautiful, I pray, that it would be as though you were seated next to each one of us, whispering into each of our ears that we would hear that well what you have to say to us. So God, exalt your, your name by your word and your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. There's a book um, whose title is absolutely fascinating. Not the title, but the subtitle. The title is The Universe and the Teacup, but the subtitle is called The Mathematics of Truth and Beauty. This is not exactly the experience that many of us had with mathematics uh, when we were going through school. Truth and beauty were usually not the words that came to mind. One of the titles that's fascinating to me in in this book, uh, chapter 11, is The Mathematics of Kindness, How Math proves the golden rule. Of course, the golden rule, you know, is do unto others as you would have them do unto you in the teaching of Jesus. What, what they did was, um, in an uh, area of math called game theory, they created a tournament of repeated games. Each entrant would submit a strategy. The various strategies played against each other by means of computers. Points were assigned to outcomes and tabulated. And to almost everyone's surprise at this uh, competition that went on, the most successful strategy turned out to be um, a program from the University of Toronto called Tit for Tat. And the program's first move was always to cooperate, not to retaliate. And turns out that was the most effective, the winning, the prevailing program. Um, now, what, what is interesting to me about all of this, or actually my area of disagreement, I don't have any problem with their math. I don't understand it. Um, and, I, and, I, and I don't doubt the fact that if you treat someone with kindness, they are likely to respond. However, this has absolutely nothing to do with what Jesus taught us in the golden rule. It has nothing to do with treating someone with kindness so that they will respond kindly. That's not the point. That may happen, probably will happen in many cases, but that's not why Jesus presses us um, to treat others the way we would like to be treated. It says, In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. We have, in a nutshell here, the ethic of the entire Old Testament put into one little expression. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Again, this is not some covert, divine, blessed way to manipulate your spouse or your boss. That if I'm kind to them, then they'll be kind to me. This is an expression of the great teaching of Jesus, love your neighbor. This is love your neighbor for dummies. Okay? 
This is for those of us who are neighbor love challenged. You can't figure out how to love your neighbor? This is how you do it. You think about how you would like to be treated and you treat them that way. Okay? That's what uh, this is about. How do I love my neighbor by treating them the way I want to be treated? <clears throat> I ran across a fascinating expression of this by a man named Murray Backey. He says, some years ago, I was in the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton College. The discussion of the day was how that particular college can do urban ministry. And a very wealthy man in the meeting said, Ray, when you and others talk about urban evangelism, I get very excited. But when you talk about social justice, social action, and social involvement, I get very, very nervous. Isn't that the social gospel? Ray says, I could feel myself becoming a little defensive, but for some reason I didn't respond at that level. I said, Clayton, Clayton, where do you live? It turns out Clayton lives in a very nice suburb. I asked him why he lived there, and he told me all the good reasons. Good schools, safe, clean, nice housing value. Finally, he said, Clayton, if anybody believes in a gospel with social implications, it's you. Every reason you've given me for where you live is a social reason. You've committed your whole life to it. If those systems weren't working, you wouldn't live there. He said, you're living where those systems function. Me and my church live where those systems don't function. We're trying hard to bring our social systems up to what you already enjoy. It's hypocritical, he says, for people to say, I shouldn't be concerned about these things when they have already committed their whole life and family to live where those systems exist. His point is that we should be concerned that others should experience what we love experiencing. That we should be concerned that there are those who do not live in safe neighborhoods when we live in safe neighborhoods. We should be concerned when those who, there are those who are not well-fed when we are well-fed. We should love our neighbors as ourselves. We should do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Uh, the, the trick is, how do we get there? How do we get to the point that we are just as concerned that our neighbors enjoy what matters to us in life as much as we do? How do we get our hearts to the place that we see neighborhoods or nations where we would not want to live? We are concerned to give them what we have desired to have for ourselves. Things like safety and access to good medical care and enough food and the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we get to the point where the golden rule is truly an act of neighbor love and not some manipulative way that we can win? Just another way we love ourselves. Now, I think that that's exactly the question that Jesus answers in the handful of verses that precede verse 12, that precede the golden rule in Matthew chapter 7. So if you'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, we'll look at verses 7 through 11 that I think set up the golden rule. However, before we can do that, we have to deal with verse 6 which in my mind is one of those highly skippable verses uh, from, a, from a teacher's perspective. You'll see why when I read it to you. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Right, isn't that helpful to know uh, that? Um, this has been called the most difficult, most enigmatic, most obscure, cryptic, and unconnected saying in the entire Sermon on the Mount. Um, so 
So what I want to do today is present you two options that I think have merit in how to think about this. The first and the prevalent option is to take this verse and tightly connect it with what we studied last week, the first five verses. Um, remember what first five verses were about last week? Do not judge. Exactly. Do not judge. And this is closely connected to that. Jesus is essentially saying, according to this understanding, do not judge except in this particular matter in which you must judge. Okay? He's qualifying uh, what he taught um, in this understanding, the pearls here, not to throw before the hogs, are the gospel. And the hogs and the dogs are those who consistently reject, oppose, and mock the gospel. And, and this is a teaching you, you'll pick up on elsewhere in the Bible. Something similar Jesus says in Matthew 10. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. This is um, not writing off people for all eternity. This is not leaving their home and saying, damn you. Okay. It is more of a strategic move than it is anything like that. It does not excuse us from loving them. We are to love enemies. Perhaps... D.A. Carson's perspective would be helpful. He says, I refuse to attempt to explain Christianity and introduce Christ to the person who just wants to mock and argue and ridicule. It accomplishes nothing good, and there are so many other opportunities where time and energy can be invested more profitably. Okay. Now, that's the first option. It closely connects this to the verses that precede. A second way to think about it is what it'll closely connect it to the verses that follow, the verses that we're going to study this morning, verses about prayer and trusting God. The pearls in this understanding are the kingdom and the life and the hope that it will come. Okay. The hogs and the dogs in this case are consistent with references in the Bible elsewhere to Gentiles to non-Jewish folk, especially their authority and power structures. And in Jesus' day, this would have been, he would have had in mind the Romans from this understanding. So basically to cast what is sacred before hogs and dogs in this understanding is to look towards or to hope in the unbelieving authorities to bring about the life of the kingdom, that we would be hoping in the governmental structures of the day to bring about the kingdom. Now, in Jesus' day, that would have been Rome. And he's cautioning against a compromising hope in those pagan authorities. Don't trust in earthly powers to usher in the life of a heavenly kingdom. Essentially, for us, that means we ought not hope in the secular power structures and authorities of our day. But instead, we should trust in God and ask Him for what we need. Trust in Him, not the governing authorities. Obama is not the Messiah. Neither was McCain. Our trust is in God. Now, now, this understanding would then flow and set up what Jesus is saying in the following verses. Don't trust in the governing authorities. Trust instead in God. Ask, seek, and knock from God what you need. And these verses... Uh, 
that follow that we're going to look at with the rest of our time are mercifully much clearer in their meaning, and they urge us to trust in the goodness of God in prayer. Back in Matthew 7, verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Six times in two verses, Jesus is urging us primarily, essentially, to pray. Okay? Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. Before God is implied. We need to pray. We need to ask because there's something we need that we cannot get on our own. We need to seek because there's something we're looking for that we cannot find on our own. We need to knock because there's a place we're longing to be, but we on our own cannot gain access. Don't miss it. Underlying Jesus' teaching here on prayer is the truth that you are in desperate Need of God's help every day. What you need most, you cannot get. What you are frantically searching for, you cannot find. Where you're desperately longing, you cannot gain access. Not on your own. You're in desperate need of God's help every day. So Jesus urges us, not one time, not two times, but six times. He comes back at us, urging us. Inviting us, commanding us to ask God, to seek God, to knock at God's door. We need God, so we need to pray. We need to pray about the stuff of life. We need God at the level of life. And I've mentioned to you before, um, my wife and I are bikers, not the leather kind, the spandex kind. I know it's scary, that's why we do it way out in the country where nobody can see us. Um, but when, when we bike, we pray the cyclist prayer. You, you, you pray. You don't want 10 to, to 15 miles from your home wearing funny shoes that you cannot walk in to have a flat tire. So you pray for your bike. You do not want to have a heart attack. I, I just, it's just a bad thing on a bike. So I, you know, I pray for my heart, which inevitably makes me pray for my heart spiritually. Um, you... You pray about drivers because they're crazy and they can, they can kill you. So you pray that they would see you and they would honor the fact that they see you and they would give you room. Okay. You pray about these things. And yes, you pray about the dogs too. You pray that there would be no dogs, no fast young dogs anyway. Um, see, the, when, when I get on my bike, I know I need God for these things. I cannot do these things. And this is life for us. We need God. We cannot do what we need done for us every day. Every day we need to pray. Jesus says we need to pray about our daily bread. Um, Jesus, however, has something else at the forefront of his teaching that's even more significant in his teaching than our great need, and that is the unquestionable, surpassing, powerful, wildly generous goodness of God. You get a sense 
for the amazing goodness of God just in the promises that are attached to Jesus' commands. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be, it will be open. This is, this is phenomenal. And it's for everyone. He says, everyone who asks receives. It's for any of God's people. There are no restrictions here. Jesus is gladly, repeatedly, enthusiastically commending prayer as a means for every one of us. For everyone who believes to lay hold of the surpassing goodness of God. His point is very clear. God is surpassingly and supremely good to his children. You should trust him. You should pray to him. He says in verses 9 and 10, Which of you, if his son asks for bread will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. It's not enough for Jesus to hammer us with these six asik-nak on the goodness of God. Now he paints two little quick sketches of how amazingly good God is. Essentially, a son asks his dad for a basic need, food to eat. This is not champagne and caviar. This is bread and fish. This is what you need. And he says, what father would possibly give a stone to his son when he's in need of bread? Or a snake in place of fish? And commentators have gone to great lengths to help us understand that a stone could look like bread and some snakes could look like some fish. But the idea behind all that is that this would be like a cruel joke. If a father gave to his son a stone when he needed bread or a snake in place of fish, the expected answer is that no father would do this to his children. Now, we all know there are dads like this and worse. Some of you grew up with dads like that. Jesus is appealing here to the norm. He's appealing to the way things are supposed to be, not some aberrant exception. For a dad to deprive his son, to go so far as to trick him, even to give him something harmful in the place of the sustenance he leaves to live, this would be unthinkable to every dad in this room. This is unimaginable that we would do this. Jesus is going to go on to say in just a minute that earthly dads, even earthly dads, know how to give good gifts. We do. I remember growing up in my middle school years, I was plagued by a series of uh, physical maladies that kept me out of athletics. And I was, loved sports, loved to run and play, and just had a, a hit on back to back to back on several of those years. In my sixth grade year, I was diagnosed with something called osgood Slaughter's disease, which is when you grow fast and play hard and your knees swell up and hurt like crazy. And the prescription for osgood Slaughter's disease back in the day was rest. 
no running, no biking, no jumping for a year. I was, I was crushed by this as, as a sixth grader. I thought this was the end of my world. And my parents picked up on this. They, they knew this was really, you know, a big deal for me. And so my dad took my bike, which I could not ride, over to the little corner a wheeler dealer, and he swapped my bike for a mini bike. Because all he had to do to ride a mini bike was this. I was good with that. Okay. And so for a year, I terrorized the neighborhood on my mini bike. All the time reminded just of the love of my dad and his ability to give me good gifts. You, you probably have memories like that of gifts from your parents as a child that just were good, good to you, extraordinarily good. Um, Jesus builds on those memories and he says in verse 11, If you then... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? You know, he's saying, if dads like mine and dads like yours can give good gifts, how much more our heavenly Father? who's without any sinful thought or attitude, who never acts selfishly, who's always motivated by love because he is love, who is generous beyond what we deserve, who has no limit to his resources. If our earthly fathers, who are evil or or sinful, know how to give good gifts, how much more our heavenly Father, who is perfectly good and perfectly holy. Now at this point, If you're still awake and you're thinking with me, you are probably running into what we call the but what abouts. Because you're thinking, but what about the time I asked for X and God gave me Y? I really wanted X. I did not want Y. I got Y. Um, And you're wondering, will God really grant me whatever I ask? Is that what this means? And I would say, are you kidding me? That God would give you whatever you ask? Are you nuts? Even earthly dads know not to do that. I would have sons driving around in Hummers with rocket launchers attached to the hood (laughs) if I just gave them everything they asked. You know, God is not stupid. He's not just writing you a blank check here. Um... God will not grant you everything you ask, and you should be glad for that. You can think of things you asked for, and it was so good that you did not get it. God had something so much. Y was so much better than X. Um, You know, you, you may be wondering, but what about, will there ever come a day when God would not provide food and shelter for me, when he would not provide the basics, you know, what would, would he not provide what we need to live? Is that possible? I would say it's possible. It could happen. It happens on the pages of Scripture. Famously, it happens in Hebrews 11 where it speaks of people being tortured and refused to be, to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. It's possible. 
It could happen. But let me see if I can put it in perspective for you. How many days have you lived? If you happen to be 51 years old, then you have lived 18,615 days. 18,615 days. Now, how many of those days has the Father failed to provide for you? I can answer that. Not one. Not one in 18,615 days has the Father never met my needs. But there could come a day. We would say that would be exceptional. And the Bible tells us we should think of that as an exceptional honor. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. We see this played out in Acts when the guys were captured and imprisoned and beaten. It says the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. It could happen. It would be exceptional. And the Bible teaches us we should consider that an exceptional honor that we should be called to suffer for the name in such a way. But the context here tells us that we are not talking about rocket-equipped hummers. We are talking about necessities. This is not just any willy-nilly request for the latest thing that we covet. And I want to underscore for you again and assure you that Jesus is not troubled by the but what about. They don't even cross his mind. They're such a small blip on the scale of the amazing goodness of your heavenly Father that Jesus is perfectly comfortable not even mentioning them. He says, ask, you'll receive. Seek, you'll find. Knock, it will be opened. No footnotes. It's really not about the but whatabouts. It's about the heart of the Father It's not about some kind of legally binding contract where we can manipulate God into doing what we need. It's about the heart of our Father who is holy, totally, without exception, worthy of your trust, period, always, every day, every circumstance, every hardship. God is good. You should trust Him. You should pray. That's what I think Jesus is saying. What kind of portrait of God emerges from this little teaching of Jesus about the Father. Which, by the way, is a fantastic question to ask every time you open your Bible. What do I learn about God here? It redeems any Bible study or Bible reading for good. Just what what do I learn about the Father? What do I learn about God as I'm reading? Well, if you ask that question, you read this text, you find this is a father who is eager to be approached by his children. You have a sense that God is just waiting for us to ask. Please ask. This is a father who is predictably and reliably good. 
Not just good like we're used to, but good beyond what we deserve or anything we've ever experienced on the happiest of occasions in the presence of the best of earthly fathers. I don't know if you realize this, but I was father of the year uh, a ways back. Um, I, I have the little badge my daughter gave me to prove it. It says father of the year on that badge. And as father of the year, you know, I've done some pretty great gift giving. I've given dolls and bikes, every kind of Nerf, Nerf weapon known to man. It's in my home. We have an arsenal there. I've passed on, I, I hope and pray, gifts of greater significance, of wisdom and integrity and faith. Um, but on my best day, my best gift, back when I was dad of the year, Jesus says it pales. It pales in comparison to what the Father is willing to give you. No comparison. This is a Father who is supremely good. And this is a father who is able. This is not a dad who wishes he could buy this for you or give this to you or pass along this to you. This is a father who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. Jesus is telling you without qualification, you really should trust this father. You really should keep on praying. That seems to be the idea here. To keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Even if you haven't received what you need yet or found what you're searching for or gotten access to where you are longing to go, keep on trusting God, which means keep on praying. Keep on praying. It raises another kind of but what about question. How how do we know this is true? When we've been praying for so long for something that matters, for the cancer to leave, for the addiction to be slain, for a job that matters, for deliverance from that sin that so regularly ensnares us, and it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. On what basis should we keep on praying when there has been seemingly no answer so far? Why keep on? And I would say two things, two related things. First, you need to know, this is not my idea. Okay? You are not following the mere directive of Larry, though I'm in happy agreement with the directive. It's not my idea. This is the teaching of Jesus, of the Son of God, who came in the flesh, God in the flesh, with all the wisdom of God. He is teaching you this. And in related, the second and most profound and significant reason to continue in this, the answer to the question, is God going to be good to me on this matter that matters so much to me? See, the definitive answer to that question we gave last week. Do you remember, if you were here last week, do you remember the answer to the question? We gave it last week. It was right at the end of the service. It happened when you came up to this table. And you took bread and you broke it. And you knelt down low and you remembered that Christ's body was beaten within an inch of his life and that crown of thorns was mockingly and mercilessly pressed into his brow and he was nailed to that cross for you. And then you took that cup and you drank of that 
that fruit of the vine and you remembered that he shed his life's blood for you. They didn't just knock him around. They killed him. And you remembered the nails that were in his hand and how the blood flowed. When they pierced his side. And in those moments, you remembered how wide and long and high and deep is his love for you. We remembered together this great demonstration of the Father's love for us, which is the cross. It's the irrefutable evidence of the love of God for you and the goodness of God towards us. So how do we know? that God will be good to us in this matter that matters so much to us? We know because Jesus didn't just teach this. He lived it to the very end, to the cross. And he gave his life there. And Paul, reflecting on that, would say, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Because of the cross, we can trust in the goodness of God. For us, in the things that matter most to us, we can keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking. We can keep on praying by faith because we know for sure that God loves us and that he has committed himself irrevocably to be good to us. And that is what underlays the golden rule. So in everything, because we understand the depth of the love of God for us and his commitment to be good to us, because of that in everything, we can do to others what we would have them do to us. That sums up the whole Old Testament. And it is fueled by grasping how deep and wide and high and long and every which way is the love of God for us. That fuels the ability to love neighbors well. We can do unto others as we would have them do unto us because we trust in the goodness of our Father to care for us. We remember the words of Jesus who said, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. The Father loves you. So this morning, I want to know, have you trusted God in this way? Have you trusted God such that you now know him as your good and loving father? Have you trusted that Christ died on the cross, not for his own sins, but for yours, to take away forever that which kept you from the love of the father? Have you trusted God like that? That's the invitation for you this morning. And if you have, are, are you trusting God that way now? Or have you given up praying about a matter that matters so much to you? Have you fallen prey to doubting the goodness of God because you've been waiting so long? Today, Jesus is urging and inviting and lovingly commanding you to keep on asking and keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. Your supremely good heavenly Father 
knows what you need. You can cast your cares on him because you know that he cares about you. Let's bow in prayer to our Father. Lord, I pray that these words from the teaching of your Son would not leave us, that they would chase us out of this room, they would follow us everywhere we go today and every day this week, we'd be reminded at every turn that you are good, that you are good. That every time we see the shape of the cross this week, it would remind us that you are good, unquestionably good, having demonstrated your love profoundly and supremely at the cross. And so, God, I pray that we would choose to trust and hope in you, that we would be a people who keeps on praying, who keeps on asking and seeking and knocking, even when the answer hasn't come yet, not in the way we'd hoped, but that we would keep on. Lord, I want to pray specifically for those here who are in the midst of one of the hardest places they've ever been. God, that this teaching, this portrait of you would infuse them with an unshakable hope. That even if things got worse, they would still hope, they would still pray. And God, in your mercy, to those who are here and they don't know you like this, that you would you'd extend mercy in this moment and you would save them. You would rescue them from having to pay the penalty of their own sin draw them by the work of your son into a relationship with you as father good loving father like no other so Lord have mercy on us chase us with your word all week long we ask in Christ's name